Hey, hey, welcome back, everyone, to another broadcast of In the Trenches. I'm excited to sit down today with David Burkus, the author of Friend of a Friend. And in today's conversation, we dive deep into the book itself, Friend of a Friend, which is all about networking, effective networking. Now, I know the concept of networking is the kind of thing that might make your eyes glaze over, but I will tell you, this is a really solid book, really solid resources. It's a strategic way to approach this idea of relationship building in the context of business. And honestly, I can't think of a more profitable way to to build your business than through effective networking, effective relationship building through your friends and friends of friends. And so it's something I can attest to. I, I would say that my business is built on a foundation of of relationships, honestly, like relationships that I've built up over the years. And if I were to try to pinpoint where much of my revenue and profit has come from, I'd say inevitably it would lead back to the network that I've established. And so in today's conversation, we dive into that. And it's a really great conversation that we have. And David is a friend of mine, somebody who I've gotten the opportunity to work with. And we've worked on a couple of projects together. I've helped him launch a couple of virtual summits, kind of set the foundation for this book launch as well, which was really fun. And David is just a really smart, caring person with great ideas and great follow through, great execution. And so my big takeaway from this conversation is just that Listen, your network does matter. And uh, and there's a lot of cliches I could throw out there, but I'll just leave it at that, honestly. Like you should be doing everything in your power to build relationships. And hopefully this podcast is a great way to start doing that. We don't just talk theoretical. We get into the weeds about how to connect to people, how to follow up and more. So even if you're the most socially awkward kid on the block, this will still work for you. All right, so enough of the intro. Let's go ahead and dive into today's conversation. So David, the way I want to kick things off today is to talk a little bit about your book, Friend of a Friend, or if you look at the cover, maybe it's Friend of a Friend of a Friend of a Friend. A friend of a Friend a of a Friend of a Friend over and over. Yeah, my, my, uh, my six-year-old actually loves to read the cover because he just keeps <laughs> going and he tries to get faster every time. It's really, I need to like take a video of it and post it online to, you know, to exploit my children for more book sales, but it's well, also just really it. cute. I like it. Okay, good. We, well, we can get into that as maybe part of this conversation, but I'm curious. So this is your third book, I, th- I believe it is? Yes, and third book. Cur- yep. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this. Like, where was the, what was the inception for this idea? And I know you went through the traditional publishing route. I believe this is the third book that's been, tra- you, that you've gone through with the traditional publisher. So that yes. model is not broken and not dead. I'm curious you, where, this usually takes a while for a book to go from idea to you find it in bookstores when it comes to say traditional publishing. So give me an idea of the advent of this and when you started it and kind of what that process has been like for you. Yeah. So, um, we, I actually find a lot of times the process of writing one book, you're researching a bunch of stuff and you end up down a rabbit trail. And then that rabbit trail is actually a highway. And you're like, there's no way I can cover this in the certain book. So this is just another idea to table and go back to later. Right. And so to some extent, that's kind of what happened with this. So in both of the books that I've written prior, I've drawn a couple studies uh, from the academic domain of network science, which is um, the study of sort of how people connect with people, who's connected to who, who's one or two degrees of separation. In fact, if you've ever heard the term sort of six degrees of Kevin Bacon, there's an actual real yeah. network science study of the Hollywood network. It's it's actually bad news for Kevin Bacon, but it's fascinating. Um, and so finding these studies and one of the things that's weird about it is that, you know, I also I, I'm, a, I'm the the writer speaker thing is a business model. So I'm a business and right? I'm thinking about it like a, a business. And so naturally you're reading kind of advice on networking is a part of generating any kind of revenue in any kind of business. So you're reading those sort of books and they really start to frustrate you because they're, 
most of what's out there is it's good, but it's advice and advice is a really good autobiography of what worked for somebody else. But there's no guarantee it's going to work for you, right? It, unless you're a very similar person in a similar situation, et cetera. But the the more different you are from that person, the less likely the advice is going to work. And the more likely when you try and apply that advice that you feel weird and sleazy and unauthentic. And that's literally like the current state of networking right now is everybody actually hates it, right? There, there are people that won't download this episode because we probably put that in the title somewhere, which is a mm. shame because I really felt like what, what we need is, is a definition of networking. That's not, let's meet lots of strangers, but one that is, let's understand the network that we're already in, how we can create value for that, how we can see who's connected to whom, who we haven't reached out to in a while, but we do know that might be a potential uh, opportunity to help them or them help us, et cetera. If it's much more about the network you're already in than trying to just expand the number of contacts you have on LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever, then that's a little bit different approach. And it's also one that's a bit more authentic. And to learn that approach, we need to learn network science. So the book is really an attempt to distill about 50 years of research into how networks work so that then you can read that and develop a strategy that's authentic to you based on what you need from analyzing the network that you're in. So I'd like to start with maybe some of the broad concepts then that underlie this. But before I get to that, I do want to comment on that idea of this idea of it being uh, sleazy or, or, or somebody just kind of being repulsed by the idea of networking because maybe there are some people who approach that from like a numbers perspective type game. And, and, and of course there's like the, the classic, uh, image of the person like handing out their business card to somebody who's like, I don't even know you and I don't really care about this, but it's funny because like, yeah, I do have this conversation. I think a lot of what I do is actually, uh, integrated into that is actually it's, it's networking. It's like, it's, and it, like I talk a lot about a collaboration and how important that is and how valuable that can be. And it is, it's not a, it's not the sexiest subject, I guess, but I think there, there is a way to approach it so that you can maybe organize it and systematize it to some degree. So it's not completely overwhelming. Cause I think that's another challenge too. People approach this and they're like, where do I even begin? And how do I stay up to date with people? How do I keep in touch? It's like, oh, I'm, and then if you're an introvert like me, it's like even worse, but I think there's value in doing that. So I do want to, I want to start with this idea of kind of the, the, the science behind this, and then how you've broken it down. Give us an idea of like how we can think about this in terms of like the broader models um, when we think about our network and how we kind of approach this subject. Yeah. So, so again, when, when we're visualizing this sort of network thing, right, I think a lot of people use the term model. I think we need to shift the mental model. It's not the list mm. of contacts you're connected to. Like your, your contacts app on your phone is not your network, right? Your, your network right. is this three dimensional thing, like, you know, circles and lines connected to people it looks like kind of like a spider web. Everybody's seen it, the sort of a picture of a network diagram, right? You exist inside of one of those. And that is what we're actually trying to get to visualize and really, and think about the people that, for most of us, either we tried to be the little sleazy business card pusher guy, or we met one of those guys and decided I'm never going to be like that. And then because of that, we just sort of let who we're connected to develop organically, right? We, we met them at a conference or so-and-so introduced us and that, and that's great. But what we kind of need to realize is that that means they are now connected to us and they're plugged in somewhere in this three-dimensional picture of the network, the industry, the, the whatever sector that we're in. 
And when you start to do that, you start to notice a couple things that are, that don't show up on a list of contacts in your phone, right? The first is that they're not all ties are built equally, right? There are what we call strong ties and weak ties. And there's actually a subcategory called dormant ties of a subcategory of weak ties. But we talk about that in a second. But the strong ties are the people that usually, yeah, we've got their cell phone number. We have their email address. We talk all the time. We see each other every day. And those are great people. They, they develop what in sociology literature is called bonding capital. They're really useful to have deep conversations conversations with, but when it comes to new information, they're actually pretty terrible because they're all interconnected. Your close friends are usually really closely connected to each other. They all sort of know each other. So there's not a lot of referral that can come out of that. They all usually think pretty similarly. So there's not a lot of new ideas that can help you solve a problem in there. But other ties in your network, the weak and dormant ties, they are somewhere else in the network. They're not closely, like if we're visualizing this, they are not the ring of people that are around you. They're further out from you and they have their own ring of people around them that are different than your close contacts. So it's your weak and your dormant ties that are the best sources of new referrals for potential business opportunities or leads or things like that. They're the best source of new perspectives. They're the best source of new information, new ideas that can help you solve problems. And yet, what a lot of us do is either just trust that organically we'll see them at some high school reunion or right or or we're going to go to that conference that we go to every year. And that's the only time we're going to reach back out to those weak ties. And then we're going to have a very surface level conversation because it's been a year since we've talked to each other right? instead of, OK, this is where I need to have a system in place in my life to where I'm reaching back out to these people. And I don't actually think you need a system like a software app that helps you. I think what it is is developing the discipline or the habit of when that person pops into your mind, take the 30 seconds, send them an email that says, hey, I was thinking, you know, hey, Tom, I was thinking about you today. I hope you're doing well. How are things with you? That's enough to start a conversation. And very few people, so long as there's not also like a random skeezy sales pitch at the bottom of that email, right? As long as that's kind of all you say, most people actually receive uh, an attempt like that as, oh, that's so flattering. Dave was thinking about me. That's that's really nice. And then they'll write back and tell you how you do and you engage in this conversation. So that's sort of that process of engaging in weak and dormant ties that can lead to a deeper conversation about, you know, here's what I'm facing and I'd love to get your opinion on it or, or do you know anyone in this field or, or what have you. It's those weak and dormant ties that if we take the 30 to 60 seconds when they pop into our mind to reach back out to them, that can really deliver a much higher ROI than just our close contacts or worse, running off trying to meet new strangers and praying that that stranger is just going to happen to have the answer. So one of the things I think about, and that's actually really useful, and I I actually do that on occasion. And so good on me. I'm, I'm proud of myself <laughs> now to hear that. Maybe to some degree I'm doing it right. But like I also think to myself, man, like I wish I would stay in contact with people better. And and so I, I think sometimes it's helpful for me to have systems and just say, okay, like try to follow up with some of these people like in the next month or two um, or try to like be more consistent with some people, um, which has, you know, varying degrees of, of uh, you know, effect in, in terms of like actually successfully implementing that. But I like the fact that this can just be something we just do off the cuff and there, there doesn't have to be any, any intention behind it besides just like checking in on somebody, seeing how they're doing. And I like that too. So that's how, I guess that's a way to keep, say, these, these contacts um, not just keep you top of mind, but keep them kind of warm. And then I guess my question would be like, in terms of like thinking beyond this, is there any, what's your take on like adding value? So one of your chapters I think is, um, you know, be a, be a super connector. And so you talk about that 
And we'll just dive into that a little bit for me, because I'm curious about how do you see this in terms of, it's not just like checking in on people. I think that's a part of it, but do you feel there's any need to provide value to people and how do you do that in an appropriate way? Yeah. I mean, I think, I I think this is something that we know is important, right? This add value approach, but yet what we, what we think that means is like, I, I cringe when people are like the, so how can I help you? Right. Which is now I have to like, that doesn't actually add value. Now I have to think of how, how you help me. So now I have a new question that I wasn't thinking about two seconds ago that, that I am thinking, and I get that it comes from a place of generosity of sort of wanting to help. And those people already do better than the ones that just take. Right. But I think what we don't realize is that, and this is from the, the, the idea behind that sort of become a super connector thing The if, if we think about a network, there's a term in sociology and, and network science called social capital, the value of who's connected to who and by whom and the value in that network and the strength of the community and all those things, just like there is, you know, physical capital assets, et cetera. Um, just like there's human capital, knowledge, skills, and abilities, there is social capital. There is value to the connections that are made. And your number one sort of way to provide value a lot of times is when when you're in that conversation with someone, whether it be a weak tie that you you reached out to deliberately or systematically, um, and and we can talk about actually, there's a couple different software systems or hacks or tools that you can use to do that, um, or whether you met them at that annual conference that you all go to, right? Um, in either case, I think a lot of people are either thinking in that conversation about either what I'm going to say next or how can I, you know, what can I do, what advice can I give, et cetera, to add value, and what we don't think is the likelihood that you as as a person and me as one person are going to match up in what we need from each other right away is very small compared to the likelihood that I know someone who would be a better fit for you. Right. So like before this, uh, interview, we were talking offline a bit about sort of like the world of, um, speaking, right. And how does Tom, Tom's already in demand, but how does he sort of scale that demand? I, I was able to give you advice, but actually now I'm thinking about this. I did, I didn't follow my own advice offline. The next, you know, best thing that I can do is go, well, you know, you should talk to this person about how they do it. And you should talk to this person. And I, and I kind of reference that because I mentioned sort of I take advice from these people and you can seek these people out. But that's usually a more valuable thing that we can offer to people. And the, the cool benefit is that there's a term in uh, computer network science, which is this sort of subdomain field called Metcalfe's law, which is that the social capital, the value in a network inc- increases in proportion to the number of connections that are going on. So this is that old, by the way, if you ever talk about like, you know, the first fax machine was a total waste. I mean, every fax machine is a waste of money now, but the first one was a total waste of money because who are you are going to fax, right? And then as soon as there was one other person, it went up in value. But when there were three people and then when there were 300 people, the value increased the more nodes there were in that network. And human networks are the same way. If you start thinking about when that person has a problem, not do I have some great piece of advice to offer, but who can I connect them with that's already in my network, you're adding value not just to that person, but you're adding value to the whole network by strengthening it, by connecting two people who previously weren't. Ooh, I like that. Okay, that's actually really helpful. And I suppose then kind of the frame of mind, the way to approach these kind of conversations or interactions is to think if the person has a problem or a challenge or they brought something up, or if you see something that they're doing, who do I know that could help them? Exactly. Who do I know that could maybe do that job for them or help them get more exposure or whatever it is, help them like amplify or whatever it is. It's who do I know that could help them do it? That's kind of the frame. Is that the mind frame that we want to go into this? No, no, exactly right. And it's not, so it's not, you know, asking at the end of a nice chit chat, how can I help? If you, if all you had is a nice chit chat and nobody's mentioning a problem in that catch up, then like, that's fine. It was great to catch up and you'll do it again in a couple months. Right. Um, but if somebody does bring it up, 
most people don't need your advice unless their problem is like deliberately what you happen to be an expert in. But if that were the case, they probably would have already reached out to you. Right. So the, the chances that that is going to be the thing, not all that uh, strong, but the chances that the value you can provide is just through that connection to someone else. Who do I know that can help them? The, the other thing you can actually leverage this on the flip side, too, if you if you are the one looking for a problem is I, I coach a lot of people to not just reach back out to weak and dormant ties, but also get into the practice of asking regularly in conversation. Hey, who do you know in blank? Who do you know in uh, who like? Like I would ask, like, actually, this is how I think I met you years ago. Like, hey, who do you know that actually understands how affiliate links work, right? And how Infusionsoft works? Who do you, I asked a bunch of different people, who do you know in blank? And when they all sort of congregate around two or three names, then I ask for an introduction. So you can not just be thinking to the other person, add value about who do I know that can help them. I think a lot of people, instead of just asking for help, asking for a sale, asking for this, need to ask for, hey, who do you know in blank with blank being the people you're trying to connect with to learn more from. And so that's actually like an appropriate thing to, to ask like other people in your network. Yeah. Oh no. I mean, I I ask it all the time. I I would say the one thing that's probably inappropriate is sort of, you know, who do you know that needs life insurance that when there's an obvious transaction type thing there, that's not going to help all that much. Nothing against life insurance. It's just that popped into my head for some reason. Um, but the posture of, I want to learn more about this industry or I'm looking for kind of more information. That's not transactional. That's not weird. That's just you looking to have a couple conversations with people to learn something. That's a totally appropriate question to ask. And one that will get answered with not just one name, but sometimes two or three names, which is really, really good. If you're asking that of multiple multiple people. Now you've got a list of sort of 10 to 15 people that you could potentially start reaching out and learning from. So again, it, it, your intentions set the tone for whether or not it's appropriate, but as long as it's much more about the sort of learning, connecting conversation and less about transactional, then it's almost always appropriate. What are your thoughts in terms of like how to do that in this, well, digital era and space that we're in? Uh, conversation that seems like that could come up pretty naturally and is easy enough. Is it, is it, is it still like the kind of question that you could ask by just emailing someone? Or do you think that that's like, maybe there's, um, an appropriate or inappropriate way to do that? Say if I was just like to email someone, Hey, do you know anybody in this? Or is it better that maybe I just catch up with them? Maybe we get on a call and then I can ask them a question like that. What's your, what's your take on something like that? I know that's kind of nuanced. Yeah. I mean, like you said, to some extent it's nuanced, it's contextual. Um, I, I think it's usually something that happens after a catch up. So you, you're trading emails back and forth or you jump on a, a you know, Zoom call or a Skype call to sort of chat and catch up and then you ask it. Um, however, sometimes the context is I know that like, for example, I know that Tom knows um, online entrepreneurship, right? So I, I could probably just cut to the chase with you and go, hey, Tom, who do you know that's worked with this platform or, or whatever? Um, because I know that's your area of expertise. So there's not much of that. The other thing is that, you know, we we talked, we check back regularly anyway. So it would be one more in a series of conversations that happen every couple of months, not you haven't heard from me in two years. And now I'm immediately asking this. So that's a bit of the the nuance. What, what interestingly in an electronic age, unfortunately, what most people do is they sort of get it in their mind that there's one specific person they want to connect to. And then they LinkedIn or Facebook stalk them to see who the mutual friends are. And then they go and beg that one mutual friend or mutual connection on LinkedIn for an introduction. And like, they don't, they don't want to introduce you. I'll, I'll tell you right now, they don't want to introduce you to, right? Because every introduction is also a recommendation. And so when you ask for an introduction for one specific person, you're actually getting them to like, oh, wait, do I actually feel comfortable recommending Tom to this person? Am I willing to put my name on their name in this conversation? It's, there's all sorts of things that start to come into play 
But if instead I'm just asking, hey, who do you know in blank? And you volunteer me that name. That's usually someone that you volunteer the name for because you're comfortable making that recommendation. So not only are you going to get more names than just sort of that one, you're going to get people that people are comfortable with. And so it's a much better posture to approach even in online when it's so easy to just LinkedIn stalk and then beg for an introduction. What are your thoughts on something like a, a podcast or a blog? I, and I bring this up because this is how one of the ways that I found it's been very valuable for me when it comes to relationships. And one of the things I encourage people when I do talk to them, like if they're interested in like getting into a space, it's like, Hey, it's not that hard to start a blog or start a podcast. Well, I mean, there's difficulties, but something like a podcast is not necessarily that complex. If you, if you can have a conversation with somebody, I found that that's like a great way for me to connect with new people too, versus just getting say like 15 minutes to, to meet somebody new, especially online, but to say, Hey, like, I'd love to have you on my podcast, feature you. And once you get some, like some credibility going with the podcast, it makes it even easier. What are your thoughts on that? Like in terms of like maybe using some tools that like would actually help other people like get exposure, get publicity. Like, is that something that you encourage? And, and what are your thoughts on something? Yeah. So in a, in a, just from a research perspective. So in the book, we talk about, there's a whole lot of research that suggests that networking events, the mixers, the, the unstructured conversations, the sort of speed dating for professionals, things are, are not all that effective. Right. And I think most like most good conference goers have already figured that out and start making plans to reconnect with weak ties during certain hours that are open instead of just wandering the halls and trusting that something will happen. Um, and the interesting thing is when you dive into that research and you start to go, okay, then what is effective? You start to uncover this thing that some sociologists call shared activities, which are different than unstructured activities. They are things that draw a diverse group of people together to do something other than just have conversations. So a shared, there, there's something going on. There's something we're trying to accomplish. There's stakes to the, to be had, right? Which is, it can be everything from, oh, I'm going to join a running club. That's a shared activity too. Let's throw a dinner party and all cook together. That's a shared activity. Uh, let's, let's join, let's serve on this with this nonprofit and build a house for Habitat for Humanity or what have you. Those are all sort of shared activities. What, what you're talking about, a podcast or a blog, et cetera, if you're, using the, if, if you're using that as the means to sort of grow your network, you're actually leveraging shared activities. You're not, you're actually inviting someone in to create a piece of content with you. Right. When you say, hey, come come on my show and let me talk about let, let's talk about what you're doing. You're, you're inviting them in to create something with you. I mean, I think there's some people that are just kind of jerks and don't really realize that and get a little sort of diva ish. But if you can stomach some a couple negative replies, most people are actually excited about that idea and will say yes far more often than if you just emailed them and say, hey, can I pick your brain for 15 minutes? Right. So it's you're leveraging that yeah. shared activity thing where there's something to do other than just have an unstructured conversation. And as a result, you actually end up building a deeper relationship with that person because now we've created them together. Like by the end of this recording, Tom, you and I will have created I mean, we've actually created a whole lot more together than that, but we will have created mm. one more piece of content together that strengthens the relationship much more uh, than, hey, can we just jump on a call and chat for 20 minutes? That not that not only is that easy to say no to. But it's just this unstructured, amorphous conversation that may not lead to something. But if we're in a shared activity together, it will definitely lead to something. It'll lead to a deeper relationship. I love that. Okay, that's that's great. And that kind of ties into, I think, one of the chapters that you wrote about was build stronger ties through multiplexing, yeah, if I'm yeah, saying yeah, that I mean, right. Yeah, I mean, so share, the shared bit. activities principle kind of leverages multiplexity, which is a, a fancy SAT word okay. um, for, I mean, it's, it's actually a great, it's, it should be legalese, but it's 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 a scientific word, so it is what it is. And the, the principle behind it is actually that if we, 
if we think about how we're connected to people, so not who we know, but how we know them, there are uniplex ties and multiplex ties. A uniplex tie is we know each other because of this one thing. We work together or we go to church together or we see each other at the gym or just, there's only one reason, one context for ever connecting with that person. And in a multiplex tie, there are multiple. We work together, but we also go to this CrossFit box together or we, we are involved in this group online and then we also did a podcast together, right? So now we've got a couple different things together. The other thing that like this podcasting idea or starting a blog and using that as the medium to reach out to people, the reason that works is that when you are doing a shared activity, you're dropping the script, the work to work, the who, you know, what do you do conversation and you're exploring the conversation from a couple of different angles. It's much more likely that you will stumble upon things that you have in common that are outside of that original reason that you two connected and that will build a multiplex tie, which is a deeper and stronger relationship. So I'm curious, what about, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, like this idea of if you don't know where you're going, uh, you know, any, any road will get you there kind of thing. And when it comes to networking, I think, I don't know if there's any, I don't know if that necessarily applies here, but on the, I think on the inverse, the, the opposite does, which is, I think sometimes when people think about networking, they think about specific people that they want to get in contact with. And you kind of mentioned that or alluded to it when you're talking about like going through LinkedIn ties. And so they say, oh, I would really love to get to know, like you, you mentioned Tim Ferriss in your book. It's like, yeah, it's like everybody wants to get an intro to Tim Ferriss. Got it. You know, uh, or something like that. What are your thoughts in terms of like how people should approach this, especially if they don't feel like they have a strong network to begin with and they don't necessarily know like, well, I don't know if I have like any intentions behind like where these relationships could, could go. Is there a process or approach that somebody like that should take that will actually just benefit them maybe in the future in ways that they don't see right now? I would say it's less the, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. And it's more that if you start thinking about a network and the way that people are connected to each other, there's actually a thing in network science called resiliency, which is if I severed a connection between two people, is there still another way? You know, if A is connected to B is connected to C. If I severed the relationship between A and B, is there a way for A to still get to C? And in most networks, there there is. This is this is actually the disturbing thing about Kevin Bacon and the whole six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing is that the Hollywood network is so resilient that you can connect anyone to anyone and you don't have to go through Kevin, right? And so when you're when you're thinking about the specific, oh, I want to get connected to Tim Ferriss, you're asking for that recommendation thing and you're going on a very well-traveled road that there's a lot of traffic and congestion on. There, the problem is a problem of sort of search. I don't know how to, how to say, oh yeah, but if you meet this person and this person and this person, and then randomly you'll get connected to Tim Ferriss. But like, I've actually seen it happen. Like I have a good buddy of mine that was doing this stuff and he was in a totally different circle with Tim, but they're both podcasters. So they, there's that. And then he is connected to this friend through this friend. And then this one invites him. And now he's in Austin and he's having dinner at a, at a taco place. Cause it's Austin. And then like literally in walks Tim Ferriss and Tim actually knows two of the other people at the table. And now this friend who, who is now connected to him, who had no idea that the route was going to go that way. But because of the resiliency, because there's sort of multiple different ways, there are multiple different paths. And usually your best route is to not have the goal in mind or at least have it in the back of your mind and just keep trying to explore the network of who's connected to who. And then eventually, if you just sort of keep growing that, you'll find that route. And that's why that's literally that's specifically why I went back to this. Who do you know in blank question? Because instead of saying can you introduce me to this person? You're saying, who do you know in blank? You're now opening up multiple possible routes. And the more you do that to the more people, the more sort of new nodes that you see in the network that you're a part of. 
And so again, it is, a, there's also a mental model thing here too, is if, if you're only defining success in networking as who you have listed in your address book in your phone, that's the wrong approach. If you've got a really good understanding of who's connected to whom and, and how, that's a, a much better approach. Like I have had, not to pick on Tim, but you know, Tim, if you're listening, hi, um, I've had multiple friends with Tim for a very, very long time that I mean, I don't, didn't want to meet him for a long time because there was nothing of value in, in that connection. So it would have made no sense to beg for an introduction until it was, Hey, can Tim fact check this, fact check this or somebody in your, in his organization? Cause I'm about to write about him in the book. Um, that was the first time I ever asked somebody to introduce him. I had two or three routes, not because I spent two years of my life trying to find a path to a certain person, but just because I tried to be open and see as much of the network that's in front of me as I could. I love it. Um, it just, it, yeah, it's, it's really powerful. So I thought about this in terms of like making this practical too. So I think these are great, like guiding principles. I think some of the stuff is actually already very practical. Um, and then I think to myself, well, you'd mentioned this, I think in passing was like some of the systems you have or what you might recommend. So in terms of like, so one of these things is the idea of who do you know and kind of what are they capable of doing or what do they do? And so I think to myself, well, I built up like a big, uh, network, you could say, and I guess that's one of the cool things about doing a podcast and just kind of being in the space. I've really, really enjoyed it. I never knew who I'm going to run into or when I connect with someone, I'm like, why didn't I know about this person before? I think it's actually, it's one of the remarkable and wonderful things about like, I guess uh, the appropriate way to network, but in terms of making this practical and something that people could implement, do you, how do you go about doing that? So you don't uh, say, well, lose the connection or, or that you're able to make intros. Like, do you keep, uh, some kind of like file on people, you know, and, or a database or something like that? I don't know that you have to go that in depth. I mean, there, there's a couple people I can think of in my life that have uh, a roster of what they would call close contacts that is so large that they have to have an external brain, right. Um, in terms of who's connected to who and what have you, I think the biggest thing is if you, if you think about, okay, my network is probably, if, if you're average, there are probably about 661. I know that's a specific number, but that's because we got it from a study. Um, people that you would say that, you know, right. It's not 150. Dunbar was wrong. Um, it's, well, he wasn't wrong, but that's a whole other monologue. It's a, it's about 600 or so give or take right now uh, of that. I think the biggest problem is that only about 75 of them are people you're talking to all of the time. The others are those weak ties. So I think just having a, a regular system in place, like, and if you, and you want a system, there's a bunch of software we can talk about. The easiest system is to literally take your text messages in your inbox, sort them by date, scroll to the bottom once a day, scroll to the bottom once a day, reach back out to that person the next day, do it to the next person. Cause that, if you sort by date, they'll float to the top, right? Really easy system for reaching back out to weak ties. The who do you know in blank question is just, it's a question you just work into the conversation at some time. And then you kind of make a mental note of it. Most of us are actually, we're social creatures. Most of us are actually kind of trained on how to do this. And why I know that is I watch people do it with their actual friends, what they would call their sort of personal life friends. You know who in your friend circle is connected to who else and, and what have you. And then what's weird is we, we flip mentalities when we get into this professional thing. We think it has to be about the Rolodex or the context app or the whatever. And we lose track that like you're already a social enough creature to be able to kind of keep that working knowledge in your memory as long as you're still connected with those people. So there's a reason the book's called Friend of a Friend. It's because I want people to start thinking about it like everyone is a friend, even if it's professional contacts, because it's all one big network anyway. And you're already trained on how to keep track of it as a social creature. And so talk to, I think people could, as they're listening to this again, probably make their own uh, assumptions or, or draw their own conclusions. But I, I would like to get your, your opinion on this. I see the applicability in 
any kind of business uh, enterprise or creative enterprise. It's like, yeah, the more people you know, the better to some degree. Well, uh, it's quality is, is important too. But people who are, who are say, who are employed, who are, who have a job in there, maybe in some sort of industry, like, is there a benefit to them to expanding out beyond that industry, expanding, expanding out their network? Even if, again, you, you mentioned, Hey, it's probably better. You don't have that end, end state in mind. And what are your, I guess, what's your thoughts and approach to, to a person like that? The short answer is yes. And the long answer is really long. Um, but there's, there's a couple of different things to say about this. So first we know that uh, no matter what industry you're in, whether you, you're an entrepreneur, whether you are working sales and marketing, whether you work just professionally, paying attention to social capital and the social network around you helps. If you work for a large company and understanding the network of your organization helps you get promoted faster, helps you get bigger pay raises. We know that causal from the data. Same thing with entrepreneurship, same thing with sales, et cetera. We also know from the data, and this I think is a total sort of, um, just boggles my mind, but it's, we know it from the data is that the people that you're connected to and your friend of a friend, even if you don't know them, the people that are actually three degrees of separation out, friend of a friend of a friend have an impact on your sense of norms, your sense of appropriate behavior, your overall, like things that affect your life, weight, smoking, happiness, all sorts of crazy things are affected by the network you're in, right? It's not that Jim Rohn was wrong. It's not that you're the average of the five people you, you interact the most with. You're the average of like 500 people that are around you in your network, influencing you in ways you don't understand. So all of this matters to sort of all of us. There's another other route that we is worth talking about too, which is Inside of network science, there's a theory called structural holes, which is that people cluster. They cluster by industry, they cluster by occupation, they cluster by all this stuff. And it's the people that bridge the gap, the open space between two different clusters of people that unlock the most value for everyone around them because they become the bridge that information between two departments sort of flows. You, you see this in organizations and large organizations really well because it's the people that aren't constrained from the silos that have a bit more holistic approach that end up having a bit more success. But the same thing applies if you're an entrepreneur, for example. Your A lot of your brilliant ideas may actually come less from your little mastermind of entrepreneurs, nothing against mastermind, but actually come from watching somebody who like, oh, you know what? They're a martial arts instructor, but I never really thought about that as a business and they do this. And I wonder how that would work over here. And when that idea migrates from one cluster to another, it can actually be revolutionary. Most of the groundbreaking innovations in any community are usually ideas that started in a different community and just migrated over. My, my great example for this one is Netflix, right? Everybody loves to talk about how incredibly disruptive it is. It's subscription that's been around for like a hundred years. There's nothing disruptive about that unless your business model is retail, then it's very disruptive, right? But it's not a new idea by any stretch of the imagination. It just migrated from one cluster to another. I love that. Well, David, fantastic conversation as always. Love catching up with you. I want to give you the floor. Where can people reach out to find you, connect with you? Where yeah, so can they find I mean, the, the single best place is probably the show notes for this episode. Tom does an awesome job. He's going to link to a bunch of different stuff. I mean, I could tell you davidberkus.com and that it's a really weird last name. It's B-U-R-K-U-S. Uh, but uh, Tom wants you to go to his show notes. He wants you to go to his site. He's, he does, makes the show for you, but wants you to enjoy it. So go to that first. That way Tom sees the, uh, the traffic and knows people are interested. And then from there, you can link to wherever you want. I love it. Well, David, thank you so much for being on In the Trenches. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Are you trying to grow your online business, but struggling to get new customers consistently and predictably? Are you tired of working nonstop only to see your income plateau? Are you ready to step off the hustle hamster wheel, as I call it, and step onto a path of predictable profit that you can scale as much or as little as you want? 
Don't worry, you're not alone. I've been there. When I first got started, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So I started reading blogs and listening to podcasts by people I respected and wanted to learn from. I slowly but surely put their recommendations into practice. But because I wanted to do it all myself, maybe you, you're you something like that, right? And you love to do, do it by yourself, learn through trial and error. Well, bottom line is it took forever. Results were unpredictable when I was first getting started. I wasn't sure where to spend my time, money, and energy. And shiny penny syndrome got the best of me on more than one occasion. For many entrepreneurs, the amount I sacrificed working literally nonstop in some cases in my spare time and 12 and 14 hour days routinely after going full time, combined with the endless fog of war, aka that uncertainty that I had to deal with at all times because I was going it alone. I think that would have been enough for most entrepreneurs to throw in the towel. But I was persistent, focused, and I stayed humble. Day after day, I worked to grow the traffic to my website, increase my list of subscribers, and generate a healthy living for my eBooks, eCourses, and other digital products. At least that was the goal. But maybe more important than the work was that I paid attention to what I was doing, including what worked and what didn't. Eventually, I discovered a predictable pattern of growth. And so what I did was I just doubled down on those things, and I scrapped or sidelined the other things that weren't working so well. Finally, two years after resigning my commission as a captain in the army and going full-time on my online business front with my blog, with my podcast, etc., I replaced my income with digital product income. Two years. And so if that's where it stopped, I would have been happy with it. I would have been happy with the results. I wouldn't have complained. I would have been very content just replacing my income. But the bottom line is it was so much work. I wanted to, you know, see if it could go somewhere else, right? So I just kept doing what I was doing, but better, faster, more effectively. Again, just kind of applying the same system that I discovered uh, from seeing these patterns emerge, right? So I implemented it. I kept doing it. And eventually replacing my income turned into doubling my income. And then that turned into a little bit more and a little bit more. But not just that, it afforded me the freedom to dictate my day and also choose the projects I want to work on, on the schedule and on the timeline I want, and to work with the people I want to work with. And to me, that's like a whole new level of freedom, especially coming from the military. It's something I've never really had that level of complete autonomy until I became my own boss. I started my own business and until ultimately, until it became profitable enough for me to start to take a step back and actually reap the rewards of it. Because it's not all just working, working, working. And I do believe it's hard work. And I'll always say that nothing about doing this stuff is easy. But at the same time, you've got to reap the rewards at some point and take some of that profit, uh, even if you're just reinvesting it into, into new assets and things like that. Bottom line is, it can't just be work, right? Entrepreneurship and business is about that result that occurs, the value you've created and the profit, that, that piece of value that you've captured, okay? And you want to be able to reap the rewards of that profit, of that value, that little sliver of value that you get to capture, that you get to net, right? You want to be able to take advantage of that. Otherwise, you know, the entrepreneurship game really does become just a grind. And, and for, I think, a lot of entrepreneurs, unfortunately, it becomes meaningless, and that's when they quit. Well, for me, I love this stuff. I really, truly do. I mean, it is my thing. And so that's why I didn't just stop where I was at. I've stayed committed to learning everything I can about all aspects of this online business world and this online marketing world. And I do this through real world application. In other words, I'm currently growing several online businesses and I'm always putting my ideas to the test in real time with my own money, with my own time and energy, oftentimes with employees, you know, a lot of some, some stuff more advanced, some stuff more simple, but you know, so varying levels of complexity and again, in different spaces, different niches. And I can say, you know, bottom line, I've always loved the startup hustle, but I got to say, it's nice to now be in a position where I can get big results with much less effort. Thanks 
to having built the foundation of my business the right way. And again, I did it all through trial and error, but I don't think that that's the way that everyone needs to do it. And in fact, looking back on it, if I had to redo it, I don't know if I would. It was so difficult to just go it alone and try to figure everything out by myself. So one of the things I've tried to do is get back with this podcast, with my blog, and with my newsletter. But maybe even more rewarding than any of this stuff, while I've enjoyed all of it, I think the thing that I'm enjoying the most, that I find most engaging and rewarding, is the premium business mastermind and coaching program I run called 100K Academy. Inside 100K Academy, I help ambitious entrepreneurs who are very driven and excited to be doing what they're doing. I help them grow their reach, their influence, and their profit using my proprietary marketing system. That's the same one I use to scale my own online businesses from zero to multiple six figures and beyond. And the same system I use to help my clients reach the New York Times, Wall Street Journal bestseller list, set Kickstarter funding records, and create viral product launches that have turned into predictable revenue streams. So lots and lots of case studies that you can find at tommorcus.com if you're curious. Just go to tommorcus.com slash about, and that'll get you started. Most importantly, this system is one that 100K Academy members and alumni have used to achieve tremendous results, like Alexa, who used it to have her most profitable year ever, or Tina, who used it to make five figures from a sales funnel that she can now replicate and scale, and that's exactly what she's doing, or Carrie, who made over $75,000 in just seven days. And the crazy part about his story was that his online business was actually a side hustle up until that first profitable launch which he has then been able to grow and scale. And he subsequently quit his job following that very successful week. And I think that that has been just a game changer for Carrie and the life he's living and the work he gets to do and the impact he gets to make on the world because of the great work he's doing now, because he was able to figure out a system that would get him the targeted traffic, the subscribers, the sales to grow a profitable online business. Bottom line, if you want to grow your online business from six to seven figures, but you flatlined or you're struggling, or you just want to be told what to do and when to do it and in what order, right? And you want a system that is predictable and scalable and isn't just you know another shiny penny, but actually will fit right into your business. It plugs in and is something that you can truly grow. I want you to go to tommorcus.com slash academy. That's tommorcus.com slash academy. Academy is spelled A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Go to tommorcus.com slash academy, and you'll find a page on my website with more details about 100K Academy, the business mastermind coaching program I run, as well as instructions on what to do next. Again, that's tommorcus.com slash academy. And if you're serious about growing your reach, influence, and profit, just follow the instructions and we'll be in touch, okay? Again, tommorcus.com slash academy. Go ahead and head over there now. That's it for today. Stay frosty.